Our scripture reading this afternoon again comes from 1 Peter chapter 2. I'll read the entire chapter. First Peter chapter 2. Hear now the word of the Lord. Therefore, laying aside all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all evil speaking, as newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word, that you may grow thereby, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. Coming to him as to a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. You also, as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. <clears throat> Therefore, it is also contained in the Scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. Therefore, to you who believe, he is precious. But to those who are disobedient, the stone which a builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble, being disobedient to the word to which they also were appointed. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Beloved, I beg you as, so as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works which they observe glorify God in the day of visitation. Therefore submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king as supreme, or to governors, or to those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers, and for the praise of those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men, as free, yet not using your liberty as a cloak for vice, but as bondservants of God. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the harsh. For this is commendable, if because of conscience toward God, one endures grief, suffering wrongfully. For what credit is it if, when you are beaten for your faults, you take it patiently? But when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth, who, when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously, who, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. 
is for the reading of God's holy word. Dear congregation, in verse 9, if you look there again, it says, You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And you look at that and you wonder, well, how are we to proclaim his praises? And that's one of the aspects that we examine ourselves for even before we come to the Lord's Supper. Is it, is it our desire to live a holy life to the Lord? Is that our desire in our life to, to live as God requires of us? And the question after the Lord's Supper, after, be give, after being given a sight again of the broken bread and the wine that symbolizes the broken body and blood of the Lord and His sacrifice, the question should be in our hearts, how should we now live? How should we now continue into this life? After seeing how the Lord Jesus himself was crucified on the cross, how he was reviled, how he was spoken against, as we heard this morning, how he was rejected in this world, and we see Mary also felt the pain of this, and that animosity that came against Christ is the result of the, the enmity that lives in our hearts by nature, the enmity against God, against what is right and against what is true, the enmity that lives especially in the unregenerate hearts. And that enmity is now still directed at Christ, but it goes through His church. Christ is now in heaven. Satan can no longer reach Him, but it is His church that has attacked His people on this earth. And that is what we face in this world as we are called to live to proclaim His praises. And so in this passage here, Peter teaches us how God calls us to live, and specifically he also gives a reason why. And so our theme is that Peter implores you to live as God's special people. Peter implores us to live as God's special people. And first we'll see that he calls us to live as pilgrims in this world, to live as pilgrims. He says in verse 11, and our main focus will be on verses 11 and 12, he says in verse 11, Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims. He begins with that heartfelt appeal. It's like he's saying, I urge you to live as strangers, as pilgrims here. Live for the God who called you to be His children. And that begins by recognizing who we are. He calls us here sojourners and, and, and pilgrims. And that, that means foreigners and strangers. That, that means this is not our homeland. We're only lodging here. We're only traveling through this life. This world is not your home. You remember how Simeon was waiting for the consolation of Israel, for the, for the comfort. And once he saw Christ, he could say, Lord, now you're letting your servant depart in peace. Paul said that too, that to, to depart and to be with Christ was far better, far better than anything in this world. And if you are a believer today, you are waiting to go to your homeland where Christ is above the believers in Hebrews 11 said the same thing in verse 13. It says they confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims here on earth. 
And why? Well, verse 14 of Hebrews 11 says, For those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. They're looking for that permanent country to which they belong. They don't want to return to this broken, this fallen, this sin-cursed world full of troubles. And verse 16 of Hebrews 11 says, But they desire a better, that is a heavenly country, that promised country that God promises as an inheritance to His people. And if you belong to Christ today, if that is what you confessed also this morning, you do not belong to this world. And you're a pilgrim because you have learned to taste and to see that the Lord is gracious. You've learned to know something about the Lord Jesus. You've been given a sight of Christ. Simeon had seen Him as a physical baby when He came into this world. And even with that, His heart was so filled with desire to be with the Lord. But Peter says in verse 3 of this chapter, that if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. And in verse 7 he says, Therefore to you who believe, He is precious. If Christ has become precious to you, then this world has lost its appeal. Then there's nothing else in this world that can pull you back, and that can take your heart. You've tasted. That means you've experienced. And first, you've likely experienced the bitterness of this world, the, the curse of sin that is in this world, the curse of death. You've experienced a corruption even that comes out of your own heart in what you face in this world. But you've also tasted that sweetness of God's Word, of God's mercy, of God's long-suffering kindness, His patience towards you, even though you have sinned so much. And you found Christ to be your cornerstone your strength, your rock. And now you look for that fulfillment, waiting for that consolation, waiting to be in the presence of Christ forever where He is. And how have you come to taste that? Oh, you've been called. You've been called, Peter says, out of darkness because you were not always a pilgrim. Yes, we are all traveling through this life, but many people tried to make this their forever home. They want to remain here because this is the best they will ever know. This is the best they can ever find because unbelievers will never find anything more satisfying or that, what gives them more pleasure than what they can find in this world. And they want to stay here. They don't just put up a tent. They try to put up castles. They want their names to endure forever. But there's also a time that you and I wanted to stay here before, wasn't there? There's a time that we wanted to live here forever. But Peter says in verse 9, But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a, roy a, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you, who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. By his grace and by his spirit, he called you out of that darkness. Paul says he raised you with Christ through His saving grace. And that means you become children of God. Peter uses that word here, his own special people in verse 9. And that word, that word special means his possession. You belong to God, chosen to be His holy possession. 
And then that new life begins here on this earth. The new life Peter refers to in in the beginning in verse 2, that as newborn babes, you you must desire the Word, the sincere Word, milk of the Word. And then it's looking forward to when you've traveled through this life. Not only are you raised to new life here, but at the end of this life, when, when eternity comes, you'll be raised from the dead to that incorruptible life to dwell with Christ forever. And that's why Paul can say in Colossians 3, if then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is, seated, sitting at the right hand of God, and set your mind on things above and not on things here on this earth, for you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. You are pilgrims here, sojourners here. You were once in darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. And Paul says, therefore, walk as children of light. And that's why Peter Peter is calling us here to live a holy life in this world. He says, I beg you, as sojourners, as pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts, and which war against your soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles. And that's the second thought. Live holy in this world. We have a double call to holiness here. The call to holiness always involves two parts. Abstain from fleshly lusts is the first one. To abstain here means to refrain, to, to, to stop doing evil, to put away Fleshly lusts are, are the worldly things, that the sins in thoughts and words and in deeds that, that, that are contrary to God's Word. You can read Galatians 5 verse 16 onward. It explains what many of these are. It shows a contrast between the lust of the flesh, the adultery, the fornication, the envy, the hatred, the murder, and all these things that, that come out of a sinful heart. And the reason he says that we have to war against these, fight against these, is because they war against your soul. You and I are in a war right now. If we notice it or not, our fleshly lusts are fighting against our soul even now. If we don't notice it, often it's because we willingly go along with what our flesh desires. It could be the simple thing as Daydreaming, going off in a way that we want to think, rather than fighting him and thinking about God's Word. It could be the temptation even to go to sleep when we need to be listening to God's Word. But we normally don't notice this enemy fighting against us until we try to resist and until we try to abstain from these fleshly lusts. And then we notice the battle. And so even now we can ask, what are the thoughts in our minds? Is it according to God's law? Is it according to God's honor? Because if not, they're fighting against your soul. They're drawing you away from God. And these lusts of the flesh are so subtle because they're attractive, they're appealing, they're promising, they're alluring, and they draw us away. But they're very dangerous and deadly and deceitful. Because we have to remember that this is a war for our soul. Our soul is eternal. It lasts forever. Satan is seeking to take our souls captive for eternity. That's not a temporal loss. That's an eternal loss. 
It's not a recoverable loss. And here Paul is addressing specifically the children of God who, whose life is in the hands of God that Satan cannot take away. But he makes us fall for many different reasons. He seeks to draw us away from God and to fall into sin and, and to, to ruin our witness in this world and to bring ourselves into despair. He started off in chapter, one, or chapter 2, verse 1, saying, Lay aside all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and evil speaking. Abstain from fleshly lusts. Put them away. Put them to death. Overcome by the grace of God. And so we have to put off the one, Paul says, to put on the other. And the second half of that call is then to have our conduct honorable. Verse 12 says, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles. Our life has to be honorable not only among believers, because that often can be very easy to live like others are, to live with like-minded people, uh, to speak with them, and to be in a workplace where we work with other believers, where we can listen to God-honoring music and have God-honoring conversation. That's a great blessing. But most of us do not, don't experience that. We can also consider it a blessing that He's called you to live as a light in the darkness, and to live as salt in the earth. And that honorable conduct refers to a good moral conduct. And that only comes from a right heart and a heart that's right with God. You remember when we spoke about Simeon, Luke 2, verse 25 says, Simeon was just and devout. He was righteous in his conduct, following the law of God. He lived according to God's Word. His life was dedicated to God in all that he did. And so we need to ask ourselves, what determines our conduct? Especially as we, as we leave this Sunday, where we have seen the Lord's Supper or partaken of the Lord's Supper, what will determine our conduct in this coming week? Well, it really is determined what we fill our hearts and mind with, isn't it? Is God filling our hearts? Or is it the music that we listen to, the music of the world, or the way that we use our cell phones, or the types of books that we read? or the thoughts that we dwell on, or the friends that we follow in this world. Peter here says, put away everything of fleshly lusts, everything that is contrary to God's Word, and as newborn babes desire that sincere milk of the Word that you may grow thereby. Paul says in another place, let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. Let that fill your heart let that guide your mind and your thoughts and your actions. <clears throat> that brings us then to the third thought here, that we are now called to live as witnesses in the world. Because the reason why you must live as honorable pilgrims, as honorable conduct, is so that you are a holy witness to God's saving work in this world, to, to God in this world. Verse 12 says, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works which they observe glorify God 
in the day of visitation. You could rephrase that sentence a little bit to say, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may glorify God by your good works, which they observe. And here he's speaking specifically of the Gentiles, for the Jews that meant the unbelievers. So when, when you are living and working among unbelievers, how they observe how you respond. And by observing how you respond, they will glorify God. Not likely at that moment, but it says in the day of visitation, which we'll look at in a moment. But the reason you must have your conduct honorable in this world is so that other people, especially unbelievers, will observe how you, your, your good works. When I use that word witness, I don't really mean the, the testimony that you give of, of maybe how God saved you, but the witness of your actions, what, what they see of your day-to-day actions. It is what words you speak and what words you use during the day and, and how you act and react. They must come to see how you respond and how you act and especially how you react, especially under opposition and especially when you're falsely accused. Simple little things like hitting your thumb with a hammer can make people ask, why didn't you swear? Think of how much greater it will be when people are falsely accusing you and you respond in a God-honoring way. But where does that begin? It begins in our home, doesn't it? Parents as witnesses to their children by how we act and react. Children to one another. It shows what lives in our hearts, how we act and react to one another. Maybe when your brother takes something away from you, how do you react? Or if your sister falsely accuses you, how do you react? If you look at verse 15, Peter says, For this is the will of God, that by doing good you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. And verse 19, for this is commendable, if because of conscience toward God one endures grief, suffering wrongfully. For what credit is it when you are beaten for your faults, you take it patiently, but when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. Christ gave us that example also to follow. Because verse 22 says, Who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth, who when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. When he suffered, he bore our sins. He bore our reproach for the purpose of redeeming His people, so that by His stripes we can be healed. When you and I suffer, it's not to pay for our sins, and it's not to earn our way to heaven, but it is in a small way to be a witness of that grace of God in us, to suffer wrong out of love for Christ, who gave Himself for us. We suffer wrong out of love for our neighbor, 
because our desire is that they also may come to know the love of God in Christ Jesus. And God begins to teach these things even when we are children, when we are in the home, and when we are maybe ill-treated at school or other places, or as we grow up, if we are not treated fairly by employers or whoever it might be in this world, we need to learn how we are to take, how we are to respond. And if Christ willingly suffered for us, for the penalty of our sin, shall we then not suffer a little when our own brothers or sisters sin against us? And so Peter calls us here to proclaim the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. And He leads us through this world as pilgrims to His glory. How do we show forth these praises, proclaim these praises of God who saved you from your sins? By putting away fleshly lusts, but living honorable con- with an honorable conduct, especially when you're spoken against for the sake of Christ. Because that's when the unbelieving world can see that there is a difference between you and them. A difference that is only possible by the grace of God. If we have have to confess, we react the same way as the world does. But by the grace of God, you are able to be different. And a difference that will be noticed and observed because it's not natural to man. But it's a grace and the fruit of the Spirit. That gentleness, that love, that joy. And this is something that we must expect in this world. It's something that we must be prepared for in this world. Because John said in John 15, if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Because they do not know God. And how will they come to know Him? How will they come to know that there's a God who can make a difference in the lives of His people? Many times it begins by them seeing you, seeing what God has done in your life by His grace enabling you to be a witness in how you react. Because when do we observe each other the most? Is it when things are going well? No, it's when we suffer. It's when things go wrong. It's when troubling times come. And 2 Timothy 3 verse 12 says, All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. But Paul goes on to say to Timothy, You must continue. You must continue in what you have learned because that is the way of salvation. Follow on. Persecution comes from the evil one, from Satan, who can no longer reach Christ in heaven, but as Revelation says, he now pursues the church. He pursues the church of Christ. But the Lord Jesus says and encourages us, he says, Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. That's important. For Christ's sake. If we do not live an honorable life, we bring reproach on ourselves, but also in the name of Christ. Our conduct must be honorable. 
If we're reviled for our own sinful actions, it's not a blessing. And we live in a nation that is so spoiled. We have so much riches. We could be tempted to complain when something doesn't go just the way we want it. But then how will we be able to have our conduct honorable when times do get difficult? But that brings us last to our last point, to live to the glory of God. Because your aim, your purpose, is to live to the glory of God. Verse 12 again says, that they may glorify God in the day of visitation. What is the chief end of man? That is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. That's the purpose of your life. And 1 Corinthians 10 verse 31 says, and whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. And that includes every part of life, including our, our suffering wrongfully, our being despised or rejected, being persecuted, being spoken against as Christ was. And you'll glorify God for the grace in your own life. Because often these are ways that our faith is tested, being reviled, being falsely accused, being persecuted, being, having to go through deep troubles. Often, these are tests and trials of our faith. And Matthew 13, verse 21 reminds us that those who do not have true saving faith, those who do not have that root of faith, they might receive that word with joy. They might look like joyful Christians. But when they face persecution or tribulation for the sake of Christ, it says they immediately stumble. They do not endure. They do not persevere in the faith. Now, Peter says in 4, 1 Peter 4, verse 14, If you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you, for the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. On their part he is blasphemed, but on your part he is glorified. And the Lord Jesus says, Blessed, you're blessed for, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. Rejoice, for great is your reward in heaven. And you learn to see how God gives you grace to stand in the hour of trial. When the world attacks you, and, you're, and then you're reminded with Paul that nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. But then you realize that it is His grace alone that enables you to react in the way you do. It's His grace alone that enables you to stand no matter what you face in this life. And then all glory and honor and praise will be to God from your heart, from your lips, to the God who has called you out of darkness, the God who grants you this faith to persevere. He will receive the glory for that. But here also the focus especially is on the others, glorifying God. Unbelievers will glorify God in the day of visitation. There are some differences on what this exactly means. Some say it could be pointing to the, the final day when the God comes in judgment, when everybody will acknowledge that God is king, that Christ is king, the king of kings. Although then for many it will be with terror if they remain unsaved. And this all testify against Him, and yet they will acknowledge Him 
and in their own way glorify Him. That's one way to look at it, a final judgment. The other is, some understand it to mean that when believers in this world are being falsely accused in front of, uh, say, the, the magistrates before the judges of this earth, when the Lord says He will give His Holy Spirit to know what to speak, that at that time they will glorify God because of what God gives. But we believe it means that the day of visitation means especially the day when the Lord in His grace visits unbelievers. That when the witness of your life made somebody realize that there is a God, that there is a difference by those who are His people, and it made them turn, and it made them ask, who is this God? It made them seek and look for God, and it led them to, to find God. You remember what the centurion said when he looked at the Lord Jesus after he died, and he says, truly, this was a righteous man. This was the Son of God. Or you can think of Acts 16 when Paul and Silas were in prison and, and, and in stocks, falsely accused, falsely put in prison, and they sang praises to God. And after the earthquake, that jailer came in, and he said, what must I do to be saved? And there's many other witnesses. We can, you can think of people like Richard Wormbrandt, who was in prison for 14 years. He was beaten, but he received it so that he could witness to the other inmates. If he would have stopped preaching, they would have stopped beating. But he said, no, I need to preach. And many saw his, his, his actions, many saw his responses, and both inmates and guards came to believe. There's many Christians who have suffered in this life and that have caused others to say, why? Why do you do this? Who is this God that you confess to know? And it leads them to Christ. And therefore, I say to each of us with Peter here, I urge you to live for the glory of God as God's own special possession, that your life may be to the glory of God, that your life may be used, that others may come to glorify God, that sinners, through your testimony, your witness in this world, your reaction, would be drawn to ask, who is this God of whom you speak? And that they may find Him and be saved. Amen.